Good morning, Bethel. Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Romans, on chapter 12, it's verses 1 to 16. So Romans 12, verses 1 to 16. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 947. So please stand with me for the reading of the word. So Romans 12, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord to us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Thanks. You can have a seat. Morning. Encouraging morning. This morning, those uh, songs that we sung are... A great uh, setup, I think, for the text we're going to consider this morning. Uh, yeah, it's just really appropriate and encouraging. So we're toward the end of this series called Gospel Culture. And if you're visiting with us or maybe you've missed some weeks, uh, what is gospel culture all about? Well, the gospel is central to why we're here, what we believe, and the truths about the grace of God that we sung about that Mark um, shared about during our, our time of song that in God's love he sent his son to deal with our sin so that we could be reconciled to him. That great truth, all of those great truths, should shape us individually and relationally in our community. So we wouldn't want to unsay with our relationships or our community, whether it's just coldness or if we you know, bite at each other or, um, you know, you can unsay with your actions and your attitudes and your words what you're saying with your creed, right? So that's ugly. <laughs> that's not what the gospel is supposed to do. Instead, the gospel is supposed to be embodied and incarnated in our individual lives and in our church family life, our relationships and community so that it's visible, so that the, the power of the gospel, the beauty of Christ is made visible through the church. That's what this series is all about. 
We're going to finish it up next Sunday. Pastor Tyler is going to be preaching on hospitality, which is another hugely important um, ingredient in gospel culture. And he shared a little bit about what he's going to be preaching. And uh, you don't want to miss it. I think it's going to be really encouraging. And uh, yeah, so that's not next week, and we'll finish up the series then. So gospel doctrine is supposed to produce gospel culture. This morning, we're going to consider how gospel doctrine produces a gospel culture of honor. Okay? So we're only going to look at one verse. We'll get to it in just a minute. So I don't... How many of you are familiar with the story of Jackie Robinson? Okay. Many of you. And hopefully more of you will be even encouraged to go check this out some more. So uh, his story has rightly gotten some more visibility in recent years. There was a movie in 2013 entitled 42, just the number 42. That was his jersey number. I'd encourage you to see it. Um, He was the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. So he started for the Brooklyn Dodgers, back when they were the Brooklyn Dodgers, on April 15, 1947. He was an incredibly talented baseball player, but he played in the face of just unbelievably vicious and cruel and shameful racism. Okay? It's 1947. Rosa Parks' righteous resistance bus segregation wasn't until 1955. Okay? So if you know the story, you know that there was a key player, another key player in this whole unfolding um, story, and it was a guy named Branch Rickey. He was the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he invited, he had a a desire to break this color barrier. And so he was on the lookout for the right man for the job, and he invited Jackie Robinson to take this key pioneering role. So um, there are some things about this story, if you've watched the movie or if you've read about it, that are just blood-boilingly ugly to see the racism of the time, and certainly we're not totally past that today, sadly. We need to keep working against that. There are also things about this story that, is, that, that would give you goosebumps, that make you cry, that, you know, just make you want to stand up and cheer. Um, tempted to read a little story from Eric Metaxas has this book called The uh, Seven Great Men, or Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness, and one of those guys is, is Jackie Robinson. I'm going to withhold because of time, but I encourage you to pick up that book and, and read at least the chapter about Jackie Robinson, okay? But what many of the accounts, especially from those who aren't Christians, leave out of the story is that both Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson were Christians. They were both sinners, just like all of us, but they were Christian brothers, okay? So listen to writer David Prince. Here's what he had to say kind of in summary of their relationship. Ricky would not accept awards for his role in integrating baseball since he viewed his labor as an act of decency. He would not describe his relationship with Robinson as fatherly since he thought it sounded patronizing and paternalistic. Yet Robinson persistently said Ricky became the father he had lost. And the executive gave the player... Robinson, full credit of success in the noble experiment to integrate baseball. Ricky said, God was with me when I picked Jackie. I don't think any other man could have done what he did those first two or three years. 
Reflecting on his role in integrating baseball, Robinson likewise gave Ricky all the credit. Robinson was called an Uncle Tom and racial sellout for his unwavering respect for Ricky. And critics heaped slanderous names on Ricky for his unhesitating support of Robinson. Both men, David Prince writes, were committed to outdoing one another in showing honor. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. Um, They were a living illustration of our verse here this morning. So we're only going to consider not just a verse, we're going to consider a half a verse, um, just the latter half of of Romans 12, 10. Um, So flip there in your Bibles if you're not there already. And uh, this little small sentence packs a very serious, meaningful punch. So let's just pray again real briefly and ask for God's help with this. Oh, Father, just like at the beginning of creation, as you spoke your omnipotently powerful words and your spirit hovered over the waters when it was formless and void and just your words through the agency of your spirit ordered things and filled things and brought fullness to the emptiness and order and beauty to the chaos, would you please now, as we hear your word, the word of the gospel, by your spirit, would you hover over us and where there is disorder and emptiness in our hearts, in our relationships, would you please order our lives according to the beautiful wisdom of the gospel and fill us with grace so that we embody and radiate the beauty of Christ as your church. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to ask a couple questions to get at what's going on here. You can see there's an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along on the slides. Um, so first off, we just need to ask what this means. Uh, outdo one another in showing honor. It sounds like we're supposed to get competitive here. Now, to some of us, that might be kind of encouraging, like, oh, good. Maybe competition's not all bad. Um, but it could sound to others of us that maybe it's, Like competition when it comes to this? I mean, that could be kind of self-defeating, couldn't it? I honor you. No, I honor you. No, you before me. You're much greater than me. I mean, it could get just really kind of awkward and clunky and weird. So the word that's translated outdo presents some difficulty, okay? Other forms of the root of this word can be translated to refer to a leader, Okay, so you can see how something like lead one another in honor would begin to get at the idea here. There's proactivity to this dynamic. We should actually go ahead of one another in showing honor. We should lead one another, lead out with one another in showing honor. That starts to get at the idea. We should, you could say, outpace, or as the ESV has it here, outdo one another in showing honor. And so if this is a competition, it's a holy, humble competition 
The point is not so that I win or you win. Ha ha, I showed more honor. No, that's not the point. The point is that other redeemed image bearers are treated as God has treated them. And in so doing, God gets the glory by this heavenly culture of honor coming down to earth and being present in his people, among his people. So we need to see ourselves called to proactively honor others from this text. We don't merely tolerate each other. That's not what we're called to. Although we are called to bear with one another. We don't merely put up with with each other. We don't wait around and only return honor to those who honor us. We're not merely reactive honorers. Okay, I just coined that word. That's not a word, honorer. But you know what I'm saying. We are leaders in showing honor. That's what this passage is calling us to. So when this starts happening in a church culture, by this proactive honor leadership we end up calling others in the body of Christ to a lifestyle and a culture of honor. It's it's kind of contagious. This is the path we're on. This is where we're going. And as we strike out on that path daily, we inevitably will call others to follow. It's this gloriously self-feeding cycle. Can you see this happening? We end up raising the concentration of grace and love in the atmosphere in the church. I mean, it's the opposite of what happens when gossip and backbiting and slander take root in a church. What happens when that takes root? Well, it lowers the concentration of grace and love, and the air gets stale, and it can even get toxic in a church culture, right? You ever breathe some of that toxicity? So outdo one another in showing honor. It's not very natural to most of us. So let's deal with first one of the reasons why it might be hard for us. We, we need to get this obstacle kind of out of the way so that we can proceed with a kind of meekness, a, a meek, receptive heart to receive this word from King Jesus and obey, okay? So one of the reasons we might not show honor well is because it can feel insincere, fake, maybe even manipulative, yes? Like, we don't like or want to participate in flattery. Flattery is cheap. It's a manipulative tool in the hand of a selfish, controlling person. It's not a virtue in the character of the godly. So that's one thing. Also, we don't want to puff people up, right? I mean, most people don't need much help in that regard. Um, God should get the glory, not people, right? Okay, so those hesitations are good and appropriate, but they best not keep us from obeying a clear command from God. So let's get that out of the way. What is this showing of honor that we're called to? How do we avoid those pitfalls? Well, this command is not a call to flattery or puffing up egos. It's a call to defer to one another, especially on hills that aren't worth dying on. And you do it out of selfless love and recognition that you're dealing with another precious in God's sight, redeemed image bearer. So it's a call to recognize also and praise 
one another's graces and sacrifices and strengths. That is not the same as glorifying people. We, get, we need to get this right. It's giving God the glory for the real and visible good that he's worked in and through someone. So when it re- relates to accomplishments, it's kind of like a way to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's a way to express love of what is good and noble and true and excellent and praiseworthy. <laughs> we should praise praiseworthy things, shouldn't we? Right? Okay. So again, this still doesn't come naturally for most of us, but if you tie it back into the context, so we're down in 12.10, but look up at 12.1 and 2. This is one of the things that happens when we reject conformity with the world's values. Don't be conformed to this world. Where quite often, right, dishonorable things are honored. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and then we'll be able to discern what God's will is, what's good, acceptable, and perfect, and we can draw attention to that. We can honor that. So, again, we're, I think most of us, hopefully, we admit we're probably not so good at this. I know. I'm really convicted and encouraged and excited about applying this word. So, next question, where's the power to do it? It's, it's kind of convicting. We might not feel like we're so good at this. Where's the power to do it? Well, again, we can't divorce this little one verse from the context. Otherwise, we're going to end up trying to do this in our own steam. It's going to turn into another rule to your growing list of to-dos. Okay, like number 17, Monday morning, looking through your list, I need to honor people more. Oh, that'll maybe last like a week, Maybe. But see, if we see that this is an entailment of the gospel, then as the gospel continues to take deep root and bear the sweetness of its fruit in our lives, then this is going to happen. A gospel culture is going to be produced, a culture of honor. So look back again at the beginning of of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... This is by the mercies of God. (laughs) That's a way to summarize the gospel. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And when when your mind is transformed, you won't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Verse 3. Okay, so how do we do this? Where does this come from? It comes from the mercies of God. It's in view of the mercies of God. What are the specific mercies of God that make us want to live this verse? What's the gospel doctrine that creates, that has the power to create the kind of gospel culture of honor that verse 10 is talking about? Well, let's think about it. Do you do this? I I hope that truths about the gospel are coming to mind. Like, oh, I could see how this truth in the gospel would produce that. Anybody having those connections? I hope so. We need, to, we need to keep working at that. Are there any dots connecting? Do you do this kind of thing? Do you take time to think about how everything relates to the gospel? The gospel relates to everything. Are you fluent in the gospel? Do you see the world through lenses, gospel lenses? Well, here's one way to see the connection, okay? So you and I, each of us in this room, we're all made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. How about that for an honor? 
That is an unbelievable honor. We were made, we were made for intimate fellowship, relationship with the king of the universe, the most interesting and powerful and creative and glorious being there is. We were made, this is crazy, read Genesis 1 and 2. We as human beings were made to be his vice regents, to rule over creation, to cultivate and subdue it. It's crazy. Is that an honor? Did God honor us when he made us? Yes. Unbelievably so. And then what did we do? Oh, how we dishonored him. Way back in Romans 1, for although they knew God, this is everybody's spiritual biography, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. We've all turned away and rebelled. You know what it's like. This is just such a little echo, but you know what it's like when you've treated someone well, you've given generously to them, and they don't even thank you. Have you ever had a person like this not only not thank you, but treat you poorly and kind of bite the hand that feeds them? Have you ever had that happen? How's that feel? Is that a dishonor to you? Yes. Well, that's just a, like a little pathetic, you know, tiny echo of what we've done with God, the ugliness of our dishonor of God. And what did God do? Well, he could have rejected us and heaped the eternal shame, the opposite of honor, on us that our shameful rebellion and ingratitude deserves. But no, he didn't do that. I mean, do you have any idea how rich, how rich our God is in mercy? Remember, it's in view of his mercies. <laughs> so God the Father, full of mercy, sends God the Son, full of mercy, to restore. Why did he come? He came to restore us to a place of honor, to lift us up out of the pit, to a place of unimaginable honor again that we totally don't deserve. He did it willingly embracing like depths of shame that we have only begun to barely appreciate. So this is the most honorable, honorific, honor-worthy being in the universe, and he stoops to the lowest place for us to lift us up, utterly abased that we could be exalted, that we would be honored, that we might be, ready for it, glorified. So the infinite took on finitude, flesh and blood. The sovereign became a slave. The author of life died. The owner of all things became a poor peasant, didn't have a place to lay his head. English Puritan Thomas Watson wrote that man should be made in God's image is a wonder, but that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. So there was plenty of shame that Jesus willingly endured and embraced as he became a man. We could list for a while under that heading, but the ultimate shame that he endured was the shame of the cross. And the shame of the cross was the fact that the cross was for cursed people. Cursed is anyone who's hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy 21. 
Any Jew who knew their Old Testament would have looked at this so-called Messiah on the cross and concluded, well, God must be pouring out his wrath on this, this one for his guilty, shameful acts. Well, no, but yes. In our place, it's our guilty, shameful, dishonorable acts that were poured out on him. Our, our guilt, our shame. Against him, the most honorable one, and what he did was he took our dishonor and he gave us his honor, the honor that was rightly his. So Jesus went through ultimate shame to shower us with ultimate honor. We deserve to be drowned by our shame. And he was drowned in the tsunami flood of shame and wrath that our dishonorable rebellion deserves. So do you see it? Jesus led proactively to honor us with mercy and glory. He wasn't passive in that. He didn't wait for us. He led out this way. And our response to lead out in showing one another honor is the reflex reaction to so much undeserved gospel honor. Okay? But that's not all. Not only have we heard justified. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior, you haven't just heard just, as, with, as if this is just a just. Justified. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only have you heard the unbelievable honor of you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with you I'm well pleased. See, we're in Christ, so those words are ours. But, but that's not all. Like I said, here, there's more. There is a day coming, folks, when the entire cosmos will see and hear the honor conferred on you. Christian by the mercies of God. If you are a Christian, you have been flooded with merciful honor, and you will be sustained through this life by God's mercies, and you will one day be honored in the cosmic theater with honor that makes the greatest earthly accolades just you know those little stars that you got in elementary school from the teacher? They're like this big, and then you wear them for like a few, an hour, and then the backing gets that, st and then it's just like it crinkles up and it's worthless. Like that's what the Pulitzer Prizes are, the Oscars, the Grammys, the Nobel Peace Prizes, the Medals of Honor and Purple Hearts, the Olympic Gold Medals, the Michelin Stars, and on and on and on compared to the glory that will be given to God's people. That's all it is. So many little crinkled, you know, paper stars. You're going to hear, if you're a Christian, you are going to hear one day to you personally, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Listen to a couple quotes by C.S. Lewis. He said, in the end, the face, capital F, which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or with the other. It's either well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me. I never knew you. So this face will be turned upon each one of us either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. If you, if you hear about the gospel of Jesus welcoming this shame in order to lift you up with gracious, merciful honor, and you reject it. 
then you will hear the ultimate rejection at the end. But if you embrace that grace, then you will hear the ultimate commendation at the end. Listen as he goes on. Lewis, this essay, The Weight of Glory, is worth the weight in gold. So he says, The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, whether you're an artist or with your work or whatever, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable, inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. We will be praised and commended by the only one whose opinion matters. We will be glorified. In fact, in Romans 8... That future day is so certain that Paul speaks of it as in, in past tense. Amen. He says, those whom he foreknow, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Is that enough honor for you? <laughs> Do you remember Isaiah 43? We are also kind of like taking a hiatus from Isaiah. Crazy verses in, in Isaiah 43, speaking of God's people. The Lord says, Fear not, I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. If you are a Christian this morning, do you know that honor is yours? Do you know that honor is the possession of every single Christian in this room and on this planet? No matter how invisible or seemingly insignificant they may appear in our eyes or in the world's eyes or even they may feel in their own eyes. So do you think, church, do you think that truth, that gospel doctrine should have any bearing on how we treat one another? <laughs> do you see how gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture? Another C.S. Lewis quote, same essay. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid upon my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. He's not talking about as if we're really he's just, just hanging there. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you say it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. 
or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So do you see what's going on here? The way we should treat each other today is in, in, in showing honor to one another, is the, the promised future breaking into the present. God has so honored us. He's done it in the past through the gospel, making us one with Christ and raising us up from our sin. But also he's promised to glorify us one day. So it's the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of glorification coming together here to push us out of our selfish little cocoons to proactively seek to honor one another. You guys tracking? <laughs> you see how that works? So those gospel doctrines should shape a gospel culture of honor in the present. So question number two, where do we find the power to do this? Everyone, <laughs> the gospel. Now what does it look like? Outdo one another in showing honor. Um, a number of different influences, teachers um, in my life have kind of stirred me up to ponder these truths on and off over the past 10 years. But as I was studying this week, I can't believe how present this concept is, this practice is in the Bible. So I kind of like skimmed through the whole New Testament, um, skimmed, looking for this, and it was way more present than I ever realized, okay? So I can't unpack much of that now, but let me just give you a few representative samples here. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. You remember that woman with the reputation who came in and broke the alabaster jar and, you know, wiping his feet with her tears and with the perfume? Judas is all upset because it should have been used for, and actually some of the other disciples, to, you know, for the poor. He just wanted to, his cut of it. And Jesus says, why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. And then he says, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus honored that woman that so many people would have marginalized because of her shameful past. Jesus honored her by grace, by the mercies of God. Paul, read Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 16. Those are like throwaway chapters sometimes to us. You know, it's like the end and he's doing the, you know, salutations and whatever. It's like, oh, no, no, no. There's all these points of honor where he's saying, you know, greet so-and-so because of this. They should be commended. He's honoring these people and telling the Romans or the Corinthians, you should honor them too. But look at Philippians 2. Flip over to Philippians 2. Verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Listen, look at this. 
For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. He served faithfully with me. And he goes on. Look at verse 25. I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, minister to my need. Okay, Epaphroditus had gotten sick. They had heard about it. You know, he was concerned that they're concerned about him and all of this. And so he sends him back. And look at verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men because he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Flip to chapter 4. This is really interesting. 4.2. Paul can even rebuke or correct someone in a way that honors them. We need to learn from this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There's something dividing them. But rather than just kind of publicly shaming them, I mean, he calls it out here, but he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help, help these women, these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel. That's who they are. <laughs> and their names are in the book of life. He honors them even as he challenges them. D- do we put those things together? So as we continue to consider what this looks like, I, and I need to speed up here a little bit. I'm going to just run down a sample of relationships. This isn't going to be exhaustive, but I hope it's illustrative as we think through the application of this text for our various relationships. So this has huge applications all over the place, but I'm going to just name a few. Christian husband. This has implications for how you treat your wife. Your wife. Husband, how do you speak to your wife? Christian husband, how do you speak of your wife? 1 Peter 3, just don't take the time to turn there, but listen. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman because she is an heir with you of the grace of life. Do you see how that gospel doctrine of glorification comes back into the present and impacts the way you husbands, me, treat our wives? If God has called her an heir of the grace of life. If she is going to be commended by God, how could I, in an insensitive, dismissive way, dishonor and shame her with my speech? Be totally out of step with the gospel. So husband, if you are harsh and belittling or dismissive or insensitive to your wife, you need a serious shot of gospel doctrine to shape the gospel culture in your home. Wife, How do you speak to your husband? How do you speak of your husband to others? 1 Peter 3, same passage. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, like maybe their conduct is not so honorable, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then crazy. Peter uses Sarah as an example, you know, Abraham and Sarah, where, you know, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Okay, this could take a while to unpack. We're just going to, we just have to skate over it just to make the point. Abraham was a cowardly skunk a couple of times, wasn't he? To save his skin. Peter didn't pick those two instances. So Peter's not endorsing what Abraham did. That wasn't okay. 
You know what he picks when he says calling him Lord? There's this little offhanded comment in Genesis 18 when they're told by the angelic visitor, you're going to have a son, and Sarah hears that, and in the tent she laughs to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Offhandedly. I don't even know if Abraham heard that, and she's speaking of him respectfully with honor. The guy that was a skunk and put her life in danger, and more than that, a couple times. She honored a husband who didn't always act honorably in order to honor the Lord. Parents, how do you speak to your children? How do you speak of your children to others? Now, there's parents that fall off the horse on the side of bragging on their kids and wrapping their identity up in the success of their children. Okay. But there's parents that fall off the horse on the other side being annoyed with and ashamed of their children. In fact, some parents use shame like a club. There is no place for that in the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Show honor to your children by listening to them being with them when you're with them, treating them as the precious image bearers they are. And then children, those of you that are still in, there, in here and not down the hall, how do you speak to your parents? How do you speak of your parents? How do you think, you know, after your parent says something, do you turn around, roll your eyes? Honor your father and mother. That's what God says to the children. Employees, how do you speak to your superiors? How do you speak of them? 1 Peter 2.18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. I mean, there's just gospel culture all over the place here. Um, 1 Timothy 6 says the same thing. Continuing with the way we Christians conduct ourselves at work, how do you speak to your colleagues? How do you speak of them? Of them? If you're an employer, how do you speak to your employees? How do you speak of them? Um, I mean, what if, what if we Christians were known for breathing this kind of otherworldly atmosphere into the air in Wilmington, in, in our workplaces? And then church member, how do you speak to your fellow church members? How do you speak of, of, how do you speak of your fellow church members? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Christian citizen, this is particularly appropriate right now, I think. Do you honor the governmental authorities in the way you speak about them? I need this one. 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone. Honor everyone. How about that? Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Well, Peter, you don't have any idea who's on the, the ticket for the fall. Well, Peter didn't live under the wise leadership of some George Washington of the ancient world. The emperor at the time was Nero. Not exactly the easiest leader to honor. One more category. Christian, does this mark your social media communication? Again, it's representative samples. Lots more application. But that impersonal kind of non-face-to-faceness of posts and comments can lead to some unbelievably untamed ugliness. And you represent Jesus in cyber world. 
We represent Jesus in Wilmington, and we represent Jesus in the cyber world as well. Outdo one another in showing honor. So, (laughs) it's convicting, but again, there is so much grace and honor in the gospel to empower a totally different, to create a totally different culture. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? Are you going to pray for that? Join me in praying for that. Just find ways to, like, find ways. See, it's proactive. Lead out in this regard. And so what we're doing, just to wrap things together here, and we'll close, is we need to follow the leader leading others to follow. Let's get our eyes on Jesus, the one who proactively embraced and despised the shame so that we could be lifted up and honored. And following him, we're going to lead out actively, proactively to show honor to one another and it's going to be contagious and we're going to be leading others down that same path and we're going to cultivate a culture of honor. You you tracking? You see that? Let's pray. Oh, Father, please do this. Only you can do this. Only the gospel can do this. So please, by the power of the gospel, as your spirit is at work among us, change us individually, continue to shape and mold us as a community so that we radiantly reflect the unbelievable and undeserved honor that you have given to us through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.